Good morning, and uh, my name is Tom Nelson. We're really glad you're here. Uh, happy Father's Day to uh, all the fathers and grandpas, and uh, Father's Day is a fun, fun day. So we're delighted you're here on this summer uh, day, and I hope your summer is going well. It's a little bit of a different rhythm, and uh, I, for one, love that. Well, there are times uh, we all hear voices, and when I say that, uh, I don't want you all to uh, pull out your cell phone and dial your psychiatrist for tomorrow morning. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. We all hear voices in our heads, voices of an inner critic that tells us repeatedly in different ways that somehow we don't measure up. I was reminded of this. Uh, anyone here, an Un- the Onion fan? I mean, you know, you love that satirical sort of piece, online piece. Any Onion fans? Well, it's a pretty amazing piece of artwork on satire. And uh, recently, I became aware of one of their most, well, interesting works. The title of this satirical article, the headline read this, get this, Brutally Honest New Revlon Ad Campaign. It reminds customers you can't change what you are. Now, here are the opening lines. Ready for this? Asserting that makeup can do little beyond creating a fleeting illusion of youth and beauty, cosmetics giant Revlon launched a new series of ads this week aimed at reminding its customers they will never be able to change what they are. The company's theme of this ad campaign is you are what you are, and it cautions customers that at best, (laughs) makeup is a sad disguise people hide behind in a futile attempt to avoid uncomfortable facts about their nature. The article goes on, get this, listen to this choice line, this ought to make your day. If you're disappointed by what you see on the outside, just imagine how horrifying you must be on the inside. (laughs) For those of us who are a little more mature, we like this line, Uh, you can conceal crow's feet but you can never conceal the appalling reality that is yourself. It's far too late for that. (laughs) Well, I like satire because tucked inside of it is an inconvenient truth, I think, that all of us can resonate with. If you're here this morning, regardless if you're younger, you're older, in between, regardless of your education, your career, the faith you embrace, or the unfaith you embrace, all of us, I think, across the fabric of humanity realize deep down that we're not all we should be or that we want to be. We hear voices in our head, don't we? I do. Voices like, you're not in shape enough, you're not smart enough, or you're not young enough anymore, or you're not old enough. Or one of the ones I hear often from my inner critic is this very thing. Can you relate to this? It's like, Tom, why on earth did you do that stupid thing again? You ever had that moment? Now, all of us struggle with that inner critic, and sometimes we have a habit in life that's difficult, we fail at, and we're confronted with that repeated bad habit. And the inner critic within us, the voice in our head, uh, lets us know it. And if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, the Bible tells us that the evil one who is called, one of his names, the accuser, sort of gangs up with the inner critic and piles on, and he reminds us how unworthy we are. 
what a spiritual failure we are, and how much we are not like Jesus. I'm often reminded of that. Some of the most discouraging things in my spiritual life is the accuser and inner critic that continues to remind me how far I have to go in my spiritual formation. I have been a Christian since I'm a young boy. I'm a pastor, for goodness sakes. And yet there are times, transparently, when an ugly thought cruises through my mind or I allow it to dwell on, or a word, an ill-guided word slips out of my mouth or an attitude creeps from in my soul that I am just absolutely disgusted with. Sometimes it discourages me how far I am how far away I am from Christ-likeness when I've been following Jesus for so long. How about you? In the midst of such a broken and messy world and so many discouraging voices in our heads and hearts, the question before us today is can we, wherever we are in our spiritual journey, can we stay confident in our faith? The text this morning But the writer of Hebrews answers an emphatic yes. We can stay confident in our Christian faith if we tune our ears to the one voice that really, really matters most. The voice of the great shepherd who has good news for you and me today. That God is not finished with you yet. If you brought a Bible this morning and whatever version, if I'd like you to turn there, Hebrews chapter 13, as we come to the last message in this journey of exploration. Now, if you've been a part of this conversation, we've been in it for five months, and uh, I think it's been a rich one for me and for many of us. You know that the writer of Hebrews, originally this was probably an oratorical message. It becomes codified and becomes a circulating letter. You see that at the end of this uh, text that was read, this back and forth of this community. But chapter 13, as we mentioned last week, as this is the last chapter in the structure of Hebrews, is really the last literary lap the writer takes us on, like a runner. It's the last lap. It's the epilogue. It's the final reminders of what he wants to leave us with in this brilliant book. And we said last time that throughout the book of Hebrews, there's been this antiphonal refrain, back and forth, back and forth, that Jesus is the true and better one. And the same sense, Jesus is beautiful, he's awesome, he's amazing, what he's done, he's true and better, no one is like him. And then also we continue to hear back and forth, but don't drift away, draw near, don't drift away, draw near. So we have this back and forth, the beauty and wonder of Jesus, and he's the best, and then the struggle that we all struggle with is to drift away from Jesus, to throw in our towel, to drift away from him, to hang it up. So we have this background. So we come to the epilogue, The epilogue flows in a threefold direction in verses 1 through 6. Right away, he encourages us, as we did a couple weeks ago, to love others well. Don't forget that, he says. Don't forget that. Last week, we looked at verses 7 through 19, and we were urged to follow our spiritual leaders well. And now in the closing benediction, particularly, I want us to focus on verses 20 through 21. We are encouraged to stay confident in our faith. Now, the word benediction... (laughs) It's just not a word we use much today. I don't ever remember the last time in normal conversation with someone uh, that I talked about benediction. 
Most of us think it might be some monk sometime, a long time ago, Benedict or something. But the idea is really important in religious genre and literature. What is a benediction? It comes from the Latin word, which literally means a good word. So it seems to be a good thing. But I'd like to suggest that from a literary perspective, particularly in religious literature, benedictions are what the finish is to great wine. Now, what do I mean by that? If you're a wine person, or you can say this with a coffee person, coffee has a finish as well, but wines often, great wines have an awesome finish. What is a finish? It is the lingering taste that you savor that stays with you for a time after you've had your last swallow. Now, if you are a wine connoisseur, many qualities make up a great wine, but you can't have a great wine without a great finish. This is true of benedictions. And may I suggest, under the inspiration of God, the benediction we are going to look at is one of the finest finishes in all of the Bible. It is something we are to linger around, to delight in its rich truths, and to savor them. Peter O'Brien, who's a New Testament scholar, describes benedictions as like prayerful affirmations, I like that, regarding the peace and grace of God that linger with us. And as we explore verses 20 through 21 this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to suggest to you as you think through the scaffolding of this marvelous text, but also the structure of the flow is really there are three prayerful affirmations the writer of Hebrews wants to leave with us. He wants us to linger there in this beautiful finish, and he wants us to savor them. The first is that Jesus has rescued you. Jesus has rescued you. The second one is Jesus is, notice the tent shift, is restoring you. And last, Jesus is pleased with you. That's where we're going as we follow the brilliant structure of this text. First, Jesus has rescued you. Notice verse 20, and I'm going to break 20 and 21 up. You shouldn't do that, but for teaching purposes, I pray that you'll indulge me with that. Verse 20. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Let's just stop right there. You will notice that there is a beautiful poetry, an assonance that begins to build here in this beautiful text. The Hebrew writer reaffirms the core truths of the gospel that he has unpacked all through the book. And he has emphasized the high priestly nature of Jesus, his atoning sacrifice on the cross. But what surprises us is not that. What surprises us in the poetic sound and the structure of the language is the emphasis on Jesus' resurrection. Do you notice the text? His bodily resurrection. So we say, why does the writer, in finishing the book, raise that to such a high level of literary prominence? Why is this? Let me suggest two things. First, there's a literary purpose, and secondly, a theological purpose. There's beautiful symbiosis and synergy here. First, from a literary standpoint, the Hebrew, the Hebrew writer is bookending an idea. And that is, we have noticed in the beginning that Jesus is the focus of this book. And at the very beginning, he emphasizes Jesus' radiance in terms of his power, his awesome power. Chapter 1, verse 3, if you recall, if you were a part of this series, in verse 3, and you can look at it later, there is an emphasis that Jesus, amazing, upholds the very universe, every atom, by the word of his power. Wow. 
That's heavy and heady, isn't it? But notice, at the end of the book, the book ending, that Jesus now has emphasized His power. And the power that is emphasized is not His universal sustenance or holding it together. It is His power over death itself. So from a literary standpoint, the writer of Hebrews books in it with Jesus, gradients of His power. And the theological emphasis here is to impress on us that Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead is the ultimate reality of all realities, the game changer of all in your life and mine. And what he is saying is if Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death, it validates everything about who he is and it changes everything. It changes the entire landscape of reality. That's a big deal. Big truth claims, isn't it? Bold. I remember as a teenager... And then even more as a college student. If you're here this morning and a teenager, teenager and college student, often this time of our life, we are trying to figure out who we are and what we believe. And I remember growing up in a Christian home, I wrestled deeply with the intellectual coherence of the Christian faith. I asked these two questions over and over again as I studied and I listened. Was this really true? If I was going to give my life to it, it better be true. Secondly, does it really matter? And both are vital questions. And my quest quest eventually came down, friends, to one bedrock truth I could not honestly ignore, dismiss, or escape. Because Jesus' tomb was empty on that first Easter morning. The honest skeptic, and if you're an honest skeptic, the honest skeptic, after examining historical evidence, must grapple with this truth, that the intersection of the road of Christian integral belief is one that flourishes, one that perseveres, but it inevitably comes and bows before the empty tomb. That's it. J.R.R. Tolkien. Tolkien was amazing, and if you're a Tolkien fan, you know that J.R.R. was a good friend of C.S. Lewis. We often quote C.S. Lewis. They were the inklings at the Eagle and the Child Club at uh, Oxford, a wonderful place. And J.R.R. Tolkien wrote wonderful literature. Most of us know the Lord of the Rings series. All fans there, go to the movies, watch the books, they're amazing. Tolkien's faith is profoundly shaping his writing. And The Return of the King is an example. I hope you've seen that movie. It is truly amazing. And the character Sam, if you haven't, see it. After just being wakened from this massive battle in which evil has finally been defeated, he exclaims, Now, Gandalf, again, is this wizard, this old bearded wizard. I can't quite get his voice down, but he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But when I thought I was dead, myself. Is everything sad going to come true? Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happening to the world? The great shadow has departed. Remember Gandalf? And Gandalf laughed, and the sound was like music, Tolkien writes, like water in a parched land. As he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. Tolkien infuses in his writing resurrection hope. And he is saying that the resurrection of Jesus 
that with Christ's bodily resurrection, a great shadow has departed from your life and mine in this world. The shadow of death has been defeated. It has been eclipsed by the true radiant Son of God. The resurrection of Jesus, notice how it's connected in Hebrews, also affirms the new covenant initiated, initiated by Jesus in the upper room before His death. It has now been eternally solidified, ratified, and guaranteed with Jesus' empty tomb. Jesus' death and resurrection make it possible for us to be rescued from enslavement to sin and spiritual death, to save us from the uttermost ruin, to rescue us from meaninglessness, despair, and eternal death. If you were part of this series, you know this theme has been building of Jesus' power. Chapter 7, verse 25 We read, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He noticed the text. He always lives to make intercession. You and I were once hell-bent rebels. But now in Christ, we have peace with God. Because of that, you and I can live the life you and I were originally created to live, the life we long to live in the depths of our beings, and we can be the people God has created us to be. As Hebrews reminds us, God is not finished with you and me yet. Now, I want you to notice, embedded in this brilliant benediction is a thread of logic that goes if slash then, if then logic. It brings confidence to our faith. That is to say, you'll notice, if Jesus, this is the thinking of the writer, if Jesus can conquer death, if Jesus can do that, if he can, then he can do that. He can do anything, anything. If Jesus can do that, then he can do this. That's the picture. He can rescue us and restore us. The one who defeated death can handle anything, period. Anything in this world or in your life today, this week. Anything you are facing right now. Maybe it's an agonizing decision in your workplace. Maybe there's too much month at the end of your paycheck. Maybe there's a relational meltdown going on at home with your brothers or sisters or your family. Maybe there are sleepless nights of worry and anxiety or a tormenting fear about what lays ahead for you for the future. God's Word declares with Jesus' resurrection as the exclamation point of authority, not only is Jesus more than able, Jesus is more than willing. You have both this unimaginable power in the radiance of His glory and unimaginable love brought together in the most brilliant metaphor He saves to the end of His book. The metaphor of the great shepherd. He wants us to linger in the finish of Jesus being your shepherd and mine. Now, the image of Jesus being a shepherd is a hard one, isn't it? Uh, When we drive to work or school or our part-time jobs or whatever we're doing, (laughs) we don't see shepherds every day and sheep. But we do have everyday occurrences that are similar. We drive by McDonald's, Starbucks, Chipotle, whatever, right? 
And we are out, rightly outraged when we hear a report or we hear of some parent neglecting their child. Or a pet owner, a dog, if you're a dog lover or a cat lover, abusing or neglecting their animals, we are rightly outraged. We know there are people who are good parents and bad parents. We know there are good pet owners and bad, owner, bad pet owners. And in Jesus' first century, everybody who heard his words knew exactly what he was saying. There are good shepherds and there are bad shepherds. And how you tell the difference is how their sheep flourish. So it's not surprising that Jesus, in John chapter 10, says, in clarity, I am the good shepherd. I am so good, I will even die for my sheep. In John chapter 10, we hear the shepherd call out to his sheep, and his sheep know his voice, and he gives eternal life to them. Isn't it interesting that John 11 flows after John 10? Found statement, Tom. What happens in John 11? Lazarus is raised from the dead. The good shepherd stands at the door of his tomb, three days dead, stinking dead, and says, Lazarus, come forth. And the great shepherd, with his unimaginable power and love, snatches Lazarus from death and gives him eternal life. week I had the wonderful privilege of speaking at a Redeeming Work Conference in St. Paul. And uh, Sarah Groves and Troy, who are friends of Christ Community, she's a wonderful singer. They have um, developed this old, redone this old church, and it's called the Art House North. I think I have a picture of it uh, before it was renovated. Um, it's an amazing place. It's a place to gather for conversation from people around the country, artists and places to discuss things. And it's a smaller church, but it has big wooden pews and a, a long open area. It was a marvelous conference, and as I stood to speak to the, gathered, the folks gathered, I looked straight behind me. And right behind me, built into the architecture of this church where worshipers by the thousands over the years had left to go serve him in the world, there is this brilliant stained glass window that covers the whole back of the architecture. And here it is. I had someone take a picture of it. Here is Jesus as the great shepherd. A reminder for all worshipers that as they leave the place of the gathered church to be the scattered church, as they go into the world to be confident in their faith that this Jesus holds them in their arms, that they can listen to his voice as they leave and serve him throughout the week. It was like an architectural finish that I savored when I left. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, is a giant stained glass window for us never to forget. He puts it before us. Follow him, love him, listen to his voice. Jesus, the great and good shepherd, has rescued us. He's also restored us. And he is restoring us. Notice the tense change in verse 21. May the, God, may the great, great shepherd, he says, equip you, present, with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. When we read this English word equip, it's kind of vanilla. I mean, we often think of 
an outfitter equipping us. You may have a summer vacation plan to go camping or something, getting all the gear. And while this Greek word does have that nuance, in this context, it's something different. And that is, the idea comes from the ancient Greek text where in the ancient Greek world, there were physicians who adjusted parts of the body to bring restoration to the body. We think of today uh, aligning our bodies. For example, many of us visit professionals periodically to kind of help us live a less painful life, and they're called massage therapists or chiropractors. They allow us to live a less painful life and restore us to more active living. And this is the picture we are given here. Jesus, the great shepherd, is also the great physician. He restores us. He works within us to realign us, to do his will, notice the text, that we have the capacity, the flourishing, to live life better in a more God-honoring way. Notice the emphasis of Jesus' work within us. Jesus, the great shepherd, is at work in restoring you and me. He is making it possible for us to flourish. One of the most familiar Bible passages is Psalm 23. We heard it read earlier. It's often quoted at memorial services to give us comfort in death, and that's a good thing. But Psalm 23 is more than just facing death well. It's about living life well. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, literally the darkest valley of my life, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy, the text should say, will pursue me with reckless abandonment all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We must not miss Psalm 23. Anticipates the coming of Messiah Jesus, the great shepherd. The Lord Jesus is my shepherd. Therefore, I have everything I need. Psalm 23 and Hebrews 13 tells us that Jesus is the great shepherd And he is more committed to your well-being, to your flourishing, to your spiritual formation, to your transformation than you are. Apostle Paul understood this in Philippians 2.13. Listen, he says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, God has so actively worked at work in your life. Even though you and I are a messy masterpiece in the making, you are his masterpiece. He is so deeply committed to make you beautiful and increasingly beautiful. You are being restored one day at a time. And one day, you and I will be fully restored and his brilliant image bearers in the new heavens and new earth. But until then, the Hebrew writer says, God's not finished with you yet. So what does Jesus need to restore in your life today? Maybe it's a broken relationship or an estranged relationship. Maybe you are here today with a deeply wounded heart, a struggling marriage, a festering wound from a difficult review at work or an employer or boss at work that drives you nuts. And if you're older here today, 
Often with age comes the locust years of regret of bad decisions or poor decisions we have made in the past. Maybe you need Jesus to restore the confidence you once had to lead again well in your family or in the workplace or in your business, and you know you're not leading well, and you need Jesus to restore your creativity and your innovation and your energy to lead and be faithful in your vocation. Maybe it's the ability to risk again. Maybe students is to take a tough class this fall again, to be willing to fail, or to lead your company or division to a more flourishing future. How is Jesus restoring you? Because you and I have so far to go. We do. I do. Because God is not finished with us yet. Our tendency, friends, in this time between, to, is to believe the hellish lie that God is somehow not pleased with us. But what the Hebrew writer builds in his literary crescendo at the end of verse 21 is this truth. I want you to wrap around your heart and your mind. That God is not done with you yet, but he is pleased with you now. Notice how this text builds to this idea. Jesus is pleased with you if you're a follower of his. Notice the phrase, pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Do you see it in the text? The magnificent news of the gospel is that you and I are fully pleasing to God, not because of anything we could do or ever done or haven't done, but because what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That is not to say everything we do and the sin of omission and commission pleases God. It doesn't. But as his redeemed children nestled in the great shepherd's arms, we are pleasing to him. We are not only pleasing to him, he takes delight in you. He delights in you. And he delights in me. The great shepherd of the sheep. Only time this is ever phrased in the New Testament like this. Tells us that you are the apple of his eye. I was reminded of this Friday night. Liz and I had the wonderful joy of going uh, to a young couple's home who had been a part of Christ's community and their friends and I wanted to introduce you to one of our newest members, 10-week-old Annabelle Marie Lubring. <laughs> Just a gorgeous little girl, and the story of God's grace and mercy is so awesome. I wish I could tell you more of the story, but I want you to come into that living room for two hours with me for a moment, will you? Justin and Carrie, here's a picture of Justin and Carrie. Amazing followers of Jesus with their precious little Annabelle Marie. We sat in their living room, Liz and I, for two hours. We didn't talk about sports or the weather or all those other fun things. All we did was delight in this precious little girl. As they called, fresh from heaven. <laughs> and Justin and Carrie held Annabelle in their arms. And Annabelle had complete trust and surrender in her parents' arms. There was just massive delight. She was pleasing in all our sights. And I left their home. And the gift, this, they call her fresh from heaven, Annabelle. <laughs> this text tells us if you are in Christ, that's how Jesus sees you. The great shepherd doesn't just tolerate us. I don't like that word. He delights in us. He delights in you. 
You are pleasing in His sight. So why then do you and why do I often listen to those voices in our heads that tell us we are not intelligent enough, we are not pretty enough, we're not handsome enough, we're not successful enough, we're not, we're not popular enough with our friends, we are not good enough when the voice of the one that really matters most says we are the apple of His eye. He is the one who holds the universe in His power, in His hand. The one who is the radiance of His glory, the creator, the redeemer. The one to whom be glory forever and ever. Jesus may not be done with you yet, friends. But He is pleased with you now. So are you following Him? Have you decided to follow Jesus? There is no one like Him. Perhaps you're here this morning and you consider yourself more of a curious onlooker than a devoted follower of Jesus. For whatever reason, your fears, doubts, confusions, indifferences, pain, pride have kept you at a safe distance from Jesus. Jesus, the great shepherd, the one who loves you more than you can ever fathom, invites you to draw near to him, to find mercy and grace in time of need. I don't know how to say it. Only Jesus can meet the deepest longings of your heart. No amount of success, popularity, fame can ever satisfy the deepest needs of your life. Forgiveness, forgiving yourself, being forgiven by God, joy, peace, and purpose, healing and hope, direction and guidance in your life, and a hopeful and joyful eternal destiny. So will you embrace the good news of the gospel? In repentance and faith, trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Will you close the chapter in your story today of being a curious onlooker and become a Jesus follower and start a new chapter? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a curious onlooker, but if you're honest, you're a closed-minded critic of Jesus. Intellectually or morally, you've been digging your heels of willful disbelief in him. Can I just tell you that Jesus loves you more than you can ever imagine? You may think you've given up on Jesus. But let me tell you, Jesus has not given up on you. In one of Jesus' most compelling stories in the Gospel of Luke, he tells of a shepherd who had 100 sheep. One of those sheep gets lost. He leaves the 99 and goes to find the lost one. See, all of us are lost sheep. All sheep get lost, but not all sheep are willing to be found by the great shepherd. So are you willing to be found by the good and great shepherd? And will you listen to his voice calling you today? Many of us here this morning have decided to follow Jesus, and the question this benediction raises is, will you draw near to him or drift away? You're either doing one or the other. Will you continue to make space in your busy life in this noisy world to listen to his voice? What might be keeping you from hearing his voice? A willful disobedience that you're unwilling to lay before God in grace, say, Jesus, help me.
pattern of discipline. Jesus taught us the importance of the rhythm of spiritual disciplines to create the space and the centering of our soul to listen to him. Perhaps you've neglected those disciplines. Maybe you've been listening to the voice as we looked at last week of false teachers or false teaching and you're not listening to the voice of Jesus. And will you not only listen to his gentle voice, his tender voice, but will you experience his transforming grace? All of us, all of us need the grace to draw near to Jesus when he seems far away. There are times in my journey, in my life, when Jesus seems way far away. And I need his grace to draw near to him. We need the grace to hold fast to our faith when times get tough, when we want to let go. And we need the grace to encourage others in their faith when we want to go it alone. Notice how Hebrews ends with a reminder throughout the whole book of the need for spiritual community. That we follow Jesus, yes, but we never follow him fully alone. We follow him with others who are called into the local church we're a part of. The true and better Jesus is what this book is about. It's all about him. Jesus, the good and great shepherd, calls out to you and me today, follow me, follow me. He doesn't scream. He gently calls out, follow me. In Jesus' great invitation in Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, Jesus, the good and great shepherd, says, come to me and I will give you rest. The yoke of apprenticeship, we discover the life we were designed to live, the life we so long to live. The life Jesus' death and resurrection make possible for us to live. Eugene Peterson absolutely knocks it out of the park in magnificence when he paraphrases this text of Matthew 11. And this is what he says. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. The book of Hebrews begins and ends with Jesus. Not only what he has done, but how beautiful he is. 17th century hymnal writer tried to capture this. In a hymn that was called Beautiful Savior, we understand it more if we've been in church, called Fairest Lord Jesus. Let me say that as I worked on this message this week, I particularly felt the weight. The Spirit's work and face the reality that any finite human, any finite human words like I could ever say can never grasp the beauty and brilliance of the infinite word made flesh, our Lord Jesus. This hymn captures a little of that. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man the Son, thee will I cherish, thee will I honor, thou my soul's glory, joy, Beautiful Savior, Lord of all nations, Son of God, Son of man, glory and honor, praise and adoration, 
now and forever be thine. Let's pray. Fairest Lord Jesus, beautiful Savior, good and great shepherd, lamb who was slain for us, there is no one like you. You are fair still today. Fair still today. And we worship you.